Okay, so I'm glad you're here. We're going to um, talk about uh, the sukkah. Right now, it's, we're in Cholomoy Tzukkah, and uh, it's really... In fact, I think today, if I'm not mistaken, is the 200th yurtzite of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. So 200 years ago, he left the world. You should know, in, in Torah, um, the day one leaves this world um, is actually considered an even greater holiday uh, than the day one's born, because... When one is born, one is a uh, sort of a a, a, uh, a bundle of potential. But when one leaves the world, then they're a bundle of accomplishment. And since this is the world of action, and we'll sort of maybe touch on that thought more toward the end of this talk, since this is the world of action, accomplishment, actual deeds done, um, is really what we, we celebrate and prize most. So, so 200 years ago today, Rebbe Nachman left the world having accomplished, you know, a ton, to say the least. And, um, and what's so amazing about him is that he, he just, he, you know, it says that a tzaddik, it says this in the Gomorrah, actually, that a tzaddik can do more from the next world uh, for us than, than even in this world. So he continues to accomplish. I'll tell you uh, one story that is kind of interesting. You know, Rebbe Nachman was opposed by, by certain people, certain Rebbe's uh, during his lifetime. Many of the Hasidic Rebbe's were, because each one of them was really innovating something, and, and they were often misunderstood. And when I say innovating, it doesn't mean they were making something new. Um, they were all incredibly uh, careful and uh, diligent in terms of adhering to the laws of the Torah. Nonetheless, the way they emphasized certain things, they blazed paths that were perceived as new. They were all, of course, based in Torah, but... Um, but anyway, and, and some of them would, would like just surprise or, or frighten other people sometimes. So, so anyway, even though there was nothing wrong with them. And then in retrospect, you see there was nothing wrong with them. But sometimes new things uh, scare people. So, so there was one particular Rebbe, and I'm forgetting his name right now. And he really opposed uh, Rebbe Nachman during his lifetime. And when the news came out that Rebbe Nachman had passed away one of the students of this, of this master came up to him and said, basically, great news, you know, Rebbe Nachman is no longer in this world. I mean, kind of a strange thing to say, no matter what, but that's, he thought that, this, that, that his teacher would, would experience this as good news. So, um, his teacher, who, like, like I said, had really been opposed to Rebbe Nachman and had given him a hard time, um, was devastated. He was so broken with the news. And the, the student who had delivered the news seemed, uh, was, you know, struck, because that wasn't the reaction that he was expecting. He thought that his teacher would be happy. And um, he said back to him, no, don't you understand? I loved Rebbe Nachman. I loved Rebbe Nachman. So the student said, well, I don't understand. Then why, why, did, you try to, why did you oppose him then? And he said, because I perceived that Rebbe Nachman's, that, that, this, that, that, that what he was bringing to the world was going to be needed much more um, in future generations, in later generations. And, and if he fixed everything that he needed to fix and accomplish everything that he needed to accomplish during his lifetime now... I was afraid that he wouldn't be there for the later generations that needed him. 
And that's why I was opposing him. So, so that's actually an amazing, that's an amazing story on a number of different levels. I heard this from Rav Shlomo Kolach. One level is the fact that this Rebbe, who seemingly was doing something terrible, opposing a great tzaddik, that his perception was so dead on, that he was so exactly right, because Rebbe Nachman has never been needed more than in our generation, and has never been more popular than in our generation. Tens of thousands of people go to Uman, to his gravesite, every Rosh Hashanah now. It's, I've never been, but I know many, many people who have. It's a, everyone reports back, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal life experience. And uh, his teachings which are so geared toward, um, toward depression. You know, in, 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 our, in our generation, depression, people suffer from it. It's so rampant. And his teachings are such an uh, 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 antidote uh, to depression that this Rebbe was really right. Uh, another, another amazing thing that you see from this story is that and this is a known thing that when Rebbe's argue and they seem to oppose each other, you, there's a lot more going on than what, what than it seems like, oh, he doesn't like him or he doesn't like him. Among Sadiqim, when they fight, their fight is, is, is much, much deeper. And, as such, never get involved in these inter... I don't... these, you know, intramural whatever fights because... What you perceive that fight to be is not what the fight is. And oftentimes what causes the big problems is, is when the Hasidim, who have no concept of what the Rebbe's are actually saying back and forth to each other, you know, jump in and try to, you know, defend the honor of their Hasidis or their dynasty or their Rebbe against the other Rebbe. They have no idea what they're doing and they're really bringing what's a very exalted thing down to a very, very low level. Um, and that really actually causes most of the problems with the, the way the Hasidim interpret what, what the disagreement seems to be. Anyway, um, like I said, it's Sukkot, and I really want to talk about the, the, the Sukkah, but, but, but just the greatness of, of Rebbe Nachman, especially on this major milestone of 200 years, uh, has to be acknowledged. So, so anyway, um, so the Sukkah, you know, what, what's one of the just endless blessings of, of learning Torah and, 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 and trying to live Torah is the holidays. And, you know, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but one of the reasons, I heard this from Rav Shlomo also, one of the reasons that Haman hated the Jews so much, you know, of course he was the, the villain in the Purim story. He was like, you know, like a proto-Hitler and tried to wipe out all of the Jews and very nearly succeeded. Um... One of the reasons why he hated the Jews so much was because they had so many holidays. It's, it's true, you know? And the... the uh, so the joke is, is that because of him we added another holiday. <laughs> and there's actually a, a modern day joke like this, by the way. Which is, it's basically the same joke. But, but anyway, they say... Uh, the, the joke is that, that Hitler... Yamakshimo's name should be erased, went to a fortune teller and, um, and said, what day will I die on? And the fortune teller said back to him, you will die on a Jewish holiday. And he said back, but which Jewish holiday? And she said back, 
any day you die is going to be a Jewish holiday. <laughs> so, anyway, so let's, uh, let's look into the sukkah. Like I'm saying, the, the holidays themselves are so deep and they're so beautiful. And every year, if you, if you do it right, every year, every year you get new insights. And then the, the, the beautiful thing is then to see everything that you've learned up until now through this new window that's been created through the new insight. Like I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that with every piece of Torah you learn, it's a brand new Torah. Now that's if you do it right. This is me talking. That's a, just to explain that teaching. You have to do it right for that to be true. Because what does that mean for every new teaching that you learn? It's a new Torah. That what, what, you see, it's so funny because sometimes people assume certain things. And then sometimes an aspect of what they assume is a sign of their own greatness. What I mean to say is that that Reb Shlomo assumed that you would know what that he would mean and that you would be doing this yourselves and that it didn't have to be explained. But that's just because it shows you that he was doing it all of the time. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, in other words sometimes if someone... See, I'll give you a, a, another version of this. But let's not lose sight of the point. Maybe let's finish the point first. What, is it, what does it mean that it's a new Torah with every with every new Torah that you learn. See, a lot of people, they're just, they learn another piece of information. So they just kind of put it on the shelf and that's another piece of information. But what if another piece of information is a new set of glasses to see everything that's on the shelf? That you're now seeing everything on the shelf in a brand new way. See, that's, that's the way one is supposed to learn Torah. You see? So, so, just to finish that digression that, that now is no longer technically a digression, but an amplification of the point, is, uh, is that the teaching is, is that if you, if you see something negative in someone else, it's only because that exists within you. But if you don't see it in someone else, if you don't have it in you, you won't recognize it in someone else. You know, I know a guy, he's, he's saying it with me right now. He's so nice. He's so nice. And, 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 and I heard that, you know, he's dating girls who are not nice. Right? So I was thinking, why is he dating girls? If he's so nice, why is he dating girls who aren't nice? Right? And I thought to myself, you know what? He doesn't see their not niceness because he's so nice. In other words, he doesn't have not niceness in him, so he can't recognize it in them. You know, so so um, sometimes that's the case when you give over a teaching, you you make an assumption because you can't imagine that anyone won't hear it the same way, right? So so. Um, so Reb Shlomo assumed that that when he said that it's a new Torah with every piece of Torah that you learn, that of course you're going to see everything that you learn now through the lens of that new piece of Torah, right? Because that's what he did. Okay, that, that's my understanding. Okay, so now let's get into the sukkah already. So, so, I'm happy because I feel like my understanding of the sukkah has, 
has concretized more this, this holiday. So I'm sort of celebrating that. And, um, and uh, let's begin. What I want to show you is a number of things. I want to show you how the sukkah is actually a microcosm of, of, of the cosmos. And I want to show you how the sukkah is a microcosm of the history of creation. From the beginning of the creation of the world to the, to the uh, final redemption. So in other words, the sukkah is a microcosm of all of time and all of space. Okay? And, um, and then uh, after that, I want to get into uh, just an explanation of the, the esrug a little bit. And to understand the, the teaching of, of what it means that the esrug is from the tree of knowledge, what that will teach us about the tree of knowledge. And also, why we read Kohelis, which is the wisdom of King Solomon, while we're, why we're reading that over Sukkot. Okay, so that's kind of the, the agenda here. So now, let's get to this idea that the Sukkah is actually a microcosm of all of space. Sort of like a miniature of the cosmic map. And um, in order to understand that, we have to understand why it is, or just to note, why it is that we're reading in the Haftorah from the prophets, from the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, about um, on, the, on the intermediate Shabbos on, 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 uh, on uh, Sukkot, why we're reading about the apocalyptic war in the end of days. It's like a very gigantic, famous piece from the, from the Torah, and we read it on Sukkot. Why? And even more to the point, who is this Gogumagag? That is the the chief villain, right? He's like the anti-god. You know, he's, he's the bad, like the worst guy. First of all, a lot of people think Gagumagag is two people. So you should know that there's at least a very strong opinion that it's just one person, that he's Gog from the land of Gog. Okay, so that's, that's who he is. But, but um, anyway, who is this guy? Why are we reading about it on, on Sukkot? And what does he epitomize? And you'll see there's something very fascinating about this. And it's going to give us an insight into the sukkah, and it's going to give us an insight into the sukkah as a structure, of, as, a, as I say, a, a miniature, a microcosm of the entire universe. So, so this is from Rabbi uh, uh, Samson Rafael Hirsch, um, one of the greatest German rabbis from, you know, around 100 years ago. And, and, and what he brings down is something so clear and, and beautiful. Gog in Hebrew means roof. Okay? So, so the big anti, the, the leader of the anti-God forces in the, in the world is basically Mr. Roof. R-O-O-F. As in that which covers your, your, your building. Alright? Now, now, we're not there yet, but we're almost there. Let's just make sure that we're keeping in mind the contrast with the sukkah. The sukkah has something on top of it. It's called schach. And schach has to be penetrable. Okay, you have to be able to see the, the stars through it. So, so, and if it rains, the rain comes right through. So what kind of roof is that? It's a porous roof. That's not your typical roof. Uh-huh. 
So, so you see a very strong uh, point of contrast. Our roof is porous. Their roof is a real roof. It cuts off the bottom from the top. All right? Or it cuts off heaven from earth. Or it cuts off a person from his creator. Or it suggests that a person is self-sufficient and doesn't need that which is above him. See, again, keeping in mind the contrast between a roof and a sukkah. I'm not saying that one doesn't need shelter in life. One does need shelter. But what we're, what we're really contrasting here, and we're using the roof as a means to make the contrast, is, a, is an ideology. That's the point. Okay? So, the anti-God forces are the roof people. They're the ones who make a strong roof, which is a separation between heaven and earth. Or a denial of heaven. Right? So that's a very, very strong idea. Now, the sukkah, the sukkah is the opposite. The sukkah says, wait a second, you know something? It's all one structure. The above and the below is all one seamless entity. And with that in mind, let's develop that a little bit further. You see, one of the things that, we talk about it a fair amount, is that when God created the world, he did something called simsum. And what simsum is, is that before the world was created, we have a, a one of the, the understandings of God is, is understanding him as the or in sof, which means light without end. And what Hashem did was, he condensed his light to the point where he made that which was purely spiritual, he condensed it and pressed it together, until it was physical, until it was the physical universe itself. You see, this is one of the main breakthroughs that people have to make if they want to understand the world in a deeper way, and if they understand, if they want to understand the way the the world the way the Torah understands it, or I would dare to suggest if they want to understand the true nature of reality, is that there isn't the material and the spiritual. That's a big stumbling block for a lot of people. They think there's the, oh, that guy's spiritual, but I'm not spiritual. All of materiality is condensed spirituality. It's hardened spirituality. That's all, it's hardened light, if you will. That's all the material universe is. You see, and now with that in mind, what you can understand is what the nature of angels are. Okay, here's just a kind of a, a side point that dwells that, that comes from this. Imagine now, again, just there's the map in your head. You've got the light without end, and then it's being squeezed together, so to speak, condensed together, so to speak, until it becomes that which is hard and real and material and physical. That's the physical universe. Okay, and it's one seamless transition. Now, what about that middle area? All right, let's talk about, we, we're talking about the orange soap at the top, the light without end, and we're talking about the physical world on the bottom. What about that middle area? Okay, so that middle area is the realm of the angels. All right, and now you can, you can understand it better, because hear what I'm about to say. You see, compared to human beings, angels are very spiritual. But the thing is, is that angels have a form. 
They have some sort of definition. They have wings, for instance. Right? They have some form of form. Compared to us, they're like spiritual. But compared to God, they're kind of physical. Do you understand? Because God is formless and has no shape at all. He's beyond, 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 beyond that. So if you're already getting into an articulation where the light, so to speak, is forming into a shape, that's already physical compared to God. Now that's that intermediate level as light is being formed and hardened into the material universe. So in other words, we've got our physical universe and then above that, the world of the angels, which are spiritual compared to us, but then the angels themselves are like physical compared to God. Right? So, but in the angelic world, it hasn't quite taken that materiality or physicality yet. You understand? That, that's the later stage. That's this world itself. Now, with that in mind, listen to this. This is actually right in the Art Scroll Sitter, believe it or not. They bring a very way out Kabbalistic pshat, alright? I'm not used to seeing Torahs like this in the, in the notes of the Art Scroll Sitter. Um, but here it is on page 630. It's um, by the Yehira Tzon, the special uh, introductory prayer that you say before you shake the Lulav in Esther, which is an amazing prayer. And you, know, you, you talk about so many things. Um, uh, you, you, you ask God that when I wave them, may an abundant outpouring of blessings flow from the wisdom of the Most High to the abode of the ta- tabernacle, to the prepared place of the house of God. I mean, it's, uh, and there's more, more, more in there. It's uh, an amazing prayer. So there's a, like a footnote. There's a footnote within that. And what they tell you is, everyone knows that in the sukkah, or on sukkahs, you take what's called the arba minim. Okay, these are the four species. Okay, that's the aravas, the lulav, the chadasim, and the esrik. Okay, now that's four items. Now there's a big four in in Torah, as everyone knows, and that's the name of Hashem, the yudke vavke. So the art scroll sitter brings down here in the name of the kabbalists what the correlation is between the arbaminim the four species, and the letters of the name of Hashem. Okay? So, so again, keeping in mind what I've just been talking about, this whole idea of the Orein Sof, the light without end, which is formless, and then going down to increasing physical definition into this world. Right? Remember, Kabbalistically, there are four worlds, and this bottom world is called Olamasiyah, which means the world of action. Okay? So, So with that in mind, that's a key. You can understand. They don't explain it here, but I I believe this is the explanation of of what it says here. Here, I'll I'll read you the footnote because they they quote someone. It says, Rabbi Michael Ber Weissmandel in Taurus Chemet is the one who brings this down. Okay? It says that he bases this uh, on a, a lot of different teachings. So the initial Yud is the Aravos. Remember, you have to picture this as a ladder going from top to bottom. Yud and Hay and Vav and the bottom Hay being this world, okay? So the top Yud being like the top of heaven, okay? So Yud, the top Yud is the Aravos. Then comes the next Hay, 
That's the lulav. Right? You may have thought that the lulav would be like the vav, because it's shaped like a vav, but we're gonna, I'm going to explain it in a moment. So, so the aravas, and then the lulav, and then what correlates with the vav is the, uh, the hadasim, and then the esra correlates with the bottom hay. Okay? So, there's a lot of questions on that. You may have thought, well, wait a second. The esrug is, is really the most special one. Um, for those of you not familiar with this sort of classic teaching, and you, you, ha- you have to know this in order to understand why each uh, species is being correlated with each letter. The, um, the esrug stands for the person who's doing mitzvahs and who's also learning Torah. Okay, so that's the most complete of them. Then the Hadassim is the person who's doing mitzvahs but not learning Torah. Okay, he's out there in the world doing good things, but not learning Torah. Okay, the Lulav is the one who's learning Torah, but he's not he's not doing uh, he's not out there doing mitzvahs. Okay, and then the Aravas is not doing Torah, he's not doing mitzvahs. Okay, so now you would say, well, wait a second. The, the, what, the Aravas, the one that's not doing anything, that's the one that correlates with the top Yud? How could it be? It should be the Esrig. The most exalted thing. But, but when I explain it, I, I hope it will be clear. Okay. So, if, if I'm understanding the, um, the logic of uh, Rabbi uh, Weismandel, I think what he's saying is the following. That the Aravas, which don't stand for anything, is because that's correlating with the top Yud, because that's, God is beyond, 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 beyond. Right? You can't put anything on God. Because He's just beyond. Okay? Then, what you see now is a progression from the upper reaches from Hashem Himself down to this world, which is the world of action. That's why the Esrug, which is the one who's learning Torah and doing mitzvahs, that's the epitome of this world. The one, who's, the one who's doing everything. Because this world is geared toward action. You have to do things. You can't just have it in your heart. Or just be thinking about it. You've got to turn that into action. That's what we get to keep in this world. Okay? And then what you have now is the progression toward action. So, Aravas, which don't correlate with anything because God is beyond. Then, all of a sudden, you have the Lulav, which is knowledge, learning Torah, but no deeds, right? Because we're not yet in the realm of action yet. It's still coming into being. Then you have, the next thing is the Hadassim with its action without learning. See how we're driving toward the world of action? And then the final thing is learning and doing. And that's the bottom head. So, so it, 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 it correlates really beautifully. Okay. So now... You have to understand, let's get back to this idea of the, the roof versus the sukkah, and the sukkah is a microcosm of all of uh, the cosmos. See, a big breakthrough for me, this, this um, yuntif, was understanding the following thing, which is that I, if you had asked me before what are the dimensions of the sukkah, I would have told you the following. The sukkah is the walls that surround you, and then it's the schach on top of you, and that's the sukkah. But then I realized, no, it's more than that, actually. It's, it's, it's more than that. The sukkah is also includes the space above the sukkah. The sukkah also includes the space above the sukkah. And I'm basing that on halakha. For the reason that, 
you're not allowed to make a sukkah in the shade of a mountain. Because then the shade that's coming into the sukkah is coming from the mountain, it's not coming from the schach. You're also not allowed to make a sukkah under the branches, the overhanging branches of a tree. Because again, the shade then is coming from the branches of the tree, not from the schach, the palm fronds on top of the sukkah. Not only that, but according to most opinions, you have to be able to see the stars through the schach itself. Which means that the intention, the reach of the sukkah, is not just the, the top of the sukkah itself, but it's beyond the top of the sukkah. So do you see how all of these halachas point to the fact that the scope of the sukkah doesn't end with the top of the physical entity itself, but goes beyond it. So in other words, a sukkah is not just the building itself, but it's the area above it as well. Aha! Translation, it's a microcosm of heaven and earth. The sukkah booth itself is earth, and the area above it, which is very much part of the sukkah, is heaven. Do you understand? So a sukkah encompasses heaven and earth. Okay. Very important. So now let's get back to Mr. Roof. Right? The, the leader of the dark forces of the apocalypse, if you will. Right? What's he trying to do? Why is he Mr. Roof? Because he's cutting off that connection. You think he wants a leaky roof? Not only that, but remember, let's, let's make the point even stronger. The schach can't be metal. If the covering on top of a sukkah is metal, the sukkah is not kosher. It's 100% not kosher. And even if you take metal strips and you cut them into metal strips so that you can see through them, 100% not kosher. So you see, there's really this, this separation of heaven and earth going on over there. Now, with this in mind, we can get a phenomenal insight, I heard this from Rabbi Tatz, into Jewish beauty. What is the definition of Jewish beauty? Okay? And how does it, how does it contrast with a secular understanding of beauty? Okay? And I'm talking about really, like, physical beauty. Like, like beauty as we understand it. Okay? Now, listen to this. Sarah, our Holy Mother Sarah, Abraham's wife, Abraham Avinu's wife, was gorgeous. She was gorgeous. So beautiful, men used to stare at her. Okay? And one of her names, Rashi brings this, you see it in the Torah, is Yiska. Yiska means to gaze. And Rashi explains that gaze, why would they gaze? Because she was so gorgeous. Okay? So, so, Rabbi Tatz points out that this word yizka has the same root as the word tzach. Okay, now he makes a beautiful, beautiful correlation. Which is that the nature of beauty is to gaze, but not just to gaze at, but like tzach, to gaze through. Which means Jewish beauty is that you see God working through that person. That's what gives them their beauty. That their words and their actions are such that you perceive that God is working through them. 
that you can gaze through that person and see God, so to speak. Okay? Now let's contrast that with the roof people, with the God people. God cuts off heaven from earth. Right? That's, that's the impenetrable roof which separates the below and the above. That means that when I see someone who is from the God clan, so to speak, who represents not these ideas, then my eye just stops at their physical beauty. Do you understand? Because they're like that roof which cuts themselves off the source from the source of their own beauty. So my eye doesn't go further than their physicality itself. I can't gaze through. That's the concept of the roof. And that's, 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 that's sort of the, the, the darker side of beauty, if you will. Because that's, that beauty inspires lust. Because all you're doing is connecting with physicality. You're not connecting with the source of it which spiritualizes it and uplifts it and makes it holy. Right? So, so that's, that, that's very striking. Okay, so, anyway, hopefully now we see how the sukkah is actually a microcosm of, of the cosmic map of heaven and earth. Alright, now let's move on to another idea. How the sukkah itself is a microcosm of the history of the entire universe, from creation to the end of days. Okay? Now, Reb Shlomo brings a medrash, and in my, in my limited understanding, I would actually classify it as a wild medrash, which says the following, which is that before God created the world, he went into a sukkah. And from this sukkah that God went into, He created the world to be like a sukkah. Alright? So, so obviously this is a very esoteric medrash. See, what what midrash is in general, we have to understand, it's, it's, it's every midrash is true. Some are fantastical and are literally true. Others are fantastical And they're also true, but not literally true. And you have to look at the sources, because the great rabbis will tell you what is what. But, here's the crucial point, they're still true. Because what they're trying to do is to communicate a point and a teaching which is true. So in other words, the details may not have actually occurred, but the truth that's being communicated through those details did occur, and therefore is true. So every Midrash is 100% true. It may also be literally true, or it may not be literally true. You have to look at the sources and see what the great rabbis say. But nonetheless, the point is, is that every Midrash is 100% true. Okay, so, so, so what does this mean that, that God went into a sukkah? So I, my, if you just want my opinion, I don't have any source for this, but I think that this is one of those ones that isn't literally true, because I don't think there was a sukkah floating in the universe before the world was created, right? Um, and of course, God has no form, so, so, but nonetheless, it's a very true teaching. So let's understand, or try to understand, I'll give you my understanding of it. You see, 
The first thing that we have to understand is that the concept of sukkah existed before the world was created at all. So that places the sukkah at the very, very beginning of time. Not only that, but what does it mean that God created the world to be like a sukkah? Well, based on what we were learning before now, it's very easy to understand. You have this physical world, but God created the physical world and its beauty in such a way that he gave many, many gateways and many, many openings, like the schach on top of the sukkah. Many gateways for understanding that there is a realm, an infinite realms, beyond just this physical world. So God created the world to be a sukkah, so that we should understand that we should be able to look at the beauty in the world, and to look at the majesty of another human being, and the greatness of the Torah, and to understand the depths that are behind these things. All the realms of reality that exist behind, beyond the physical. So that's what it means that the world is created to be like a sukkah. Right? Now, I was... I was kind of uh, sitting in the sukkah. I think it was last year, maybe it was the year before. And I had these uh, kind of these wall hangings in my sukkah. They're like... They're like large sheets. I mean, you could be fancy and call them tapestries, but they're like cotton, you know. And, uh, but they have like a nice pattern on them. And a large pattern that kind of fills the whole wall. And uh, anyway, someone gave us one and then we bought another one. And then they multiplied and we have about six of them now. So basically, all the walls of our sukkah are all covered with uh, different colored versions of this same tapestry. So it gives it kind of a, a striking look. And the, the, the main part of the tapestry, it's like a circle with each of the ushpizen. Because each of the, each of the knights correlates with a, a different great person. So it's Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, and King David. Okay, those are the seven. Those are the seven. Okay. So I'm kind of looking at their names. I'm sitting there looking at their names. And then I, I think, well, now I'm counting the letters of all their names. And it blew me away, actually, because it's, 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 you see, before I tell you, let me just explain so you'll understand. You see, our mystical tradition, I'm, I'm telling you that the sukkah is a microcosm of the history of the universe from the beginning of time till the end of days. And I'll get to the end of days in a moment, but I'm just doing the beginning of time right now, okay? So, although this thought also includes the end of time. Our mystical tradition is that God created the wor- world with the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. Okay? And the way I understand it, and this is just me talking right now, but it just feels like it's appropriate to say that each of the letters represents a different energy wavelength. And so, you know, you can, it's kind of almost more a teaching, it feels like, in physics to me. Um, so, but each one of the letters, so, so there are 22 letters, okay, in the Aleph base, in the Hebrew alphabet, plus five final letters. So 22 letters plus five final letters. All right? Now, the final letters, by the way, stand for the end of days. It makes sense. Final letters, end of days. 
So, how many letters do you think are in the names of the Ushpizen, the holy guests, which, which are in the sukkah every single night? 27. 27 letters. 22 plus 5. 22 plus 5. So, what I want to say is, is that because the final letters stand for the end of days, basically, we say that Hashem had the end in mind at the time of the beginning. Like the example that we always give, that when an architect builds a house, he envisions the completed house first. Hashem, when he went to build the world, envisioned the perfected world at the time of creation. And now we're partners with God on the way to getting to that realm of perfection. Right? We're building the world with God. That's what the Torah and the Mitzvahs are. Okay? So, but, the final letters representing the end of days were part of the initial recipe, if you will. Right? That was, that's, those five are included in the 22. Okay? In other words, the completion was an ingredient at the time of the creation. Okay? Now, so that's what I'd like to say the Ushpizen are hinting at. Now, now at the end of days, it says that God is going to bring all the tzaddikim, all the righteous, into a giant sukkah made with the skin of the Leviathan, right? The Leviathan in English. And so there you see that the sukkah is sort of like the culmination. That's where, like, the big rap party is going to take place. You know, at the end of human history, is going to be in a sukkah. Okay, so there, very clearly, you see it represents the end. So in this way, you see the beginning to the end, the entire thing, time and space, is all represented in the sukkah itself. Okay. Now, um, I want to just uh, say another point. Um, I heard this in the name of Rabbi uh, Simcha Weinberg, and I'm going to just maybe build on it slightly. You see, what we're talking about is that the sukkah is a really interesting thing, because, like I said, it's, if you think of Simpson, like the, the condensing of Hashem's light, down into this world. Like, you're really, when you sit in the sukkah, it's like, it's still kind of forming. Your year is still kind of forming. You know? We haven't gotten to Hoshana Rabbah yet, which is the final ceiling. You know? It's more or less formed. You know? We've already had Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's more or less formed. But the gates are still a little bit open. You know? It's still forming a little bit. And you can sit in your sukkah and you can still dream. You can still dream about the year that you want to have as it's taking its final, final form, its final, final shape. You know? You see, the thing is, is that um, a lot of times when people have spiritual moments, they just fly out of their heads. I, I, I was spending Pesach with Reb Shlomo Karlbach one year in Florida. And I don't know what possessed me to say this, but I said to him, let's play a game. I said, I'll start a story and then you give the next chapter to the story. And then I'll give the next chapter to the story. Right? Because I had thought of something that I liked, and I wanted it just to hear what his response would be, right? But it was kind of like a story kind of thing. So I said, there's a cave. And out of the cave, like, you can hear, like, in a wind that's blowing out of the cave, like, deep Torah teachings. Like, what I had in mind was, like, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was learning with his son in the cave. And I was just thinking, what if you like walked by like that cave and out of the cave you could hear like the teachings like blowing out of the cave, right? 
So that's what I said to him. That was the first thing. And he said, I don't remember everything he said, but I just, and we only, he only said that one thing, and then I didn't give the next chapter after that, but I just give this over to you. So he said, well, a father and a son hear it. Maybe I said that part, or maybe he said that part, I don't know. And then he said, okay, cut to many years later. They've forgotten what they heard. And I was always, you know, I'm a writer, so storytelling is one of the things that I do, that, how I make my living. So it's, to me, just in terms of the storytelling, I never would have gone to that place. I never would have gone to that place. That, because to me, you're standing in front of a cave and you're hearing these, like, you know, awesome secrets of the universe blowing out of the cave. Like, are you going to walk into the cave? Like, what's... Certainly you're going to interact with the cave. Like, that's going to be the next chapter. But in Reb Shlomo's mind, that wasn't the next chapter. It was cut to many years later, you for, they've forgotten the experience. And I just thought, wow, what an insight. Like, I just never would have gone that way. And to me, the reason why I'm bringing it up right now is because when people have spiritual moments, it's so easy for them just to fly out of their heads. He was really touching on a truth. It's so easy just for them to fly out of your head. It's like, I felt spiritual, and now it's the next moment it's gone. So holding on, learning to hold on to those moments is a very big avoda, a very big necessary practice in life. And that's one of the things that the, that the sukkah is. It's like a vessel of dreams. You know, where you can sit and dwell amidst your dreams and let them take shape and let them form into something harder and realer and something that you can hold on to. You know? So, so I want to switch topics and uh, just get one more idea in because I don't want to lose it which is just about the Esrig itself and just how it connects to us reading Kohelis, which is, it's, uh, that's uh, uh, translated in English as Ecclesiastes, and it's the, um, and it's the, uh, the, uh, a compendium of the wisdom of, 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 of King Solomon, of Shlomo HaMelech. Okay? So why are we reading it now on, on Sukkot? So, let me just say the following thing, because to me this was like a, 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 a major new piece of information. And I'll just try to say it quickly. Which is that, you know, the way um, I've been learning Reb Shlomo's Torahs, the way Reb Shlomo would, would teach over the years, is he would make um, two, like, two major reference points, uh, all the time, all the time actually, when he taught. One was something that he'd call a tree of knowledge teaching, and the other he'd call the tree of life teaching, or the tree of life approach, or the tree of knowledge approach, or that's Eitzadas stuff, or that's Eitzchayim, that's, that's right? And the Eitzadas, the tree of knowledge, was always the, the, the wrong approach. Oh, 100% of the time, the wrong approach. Because what it symbolized was something that was devoid of life, because it wasn't from the tree of life, it was something that was over-rationalistic and dry, that was, that was representing the mind without the heart. All of that was, is Eitz Chaim, okay? And then, or I'm sorry, Eitz Adas, Tree of Knowledge. And Tree of Life was everything that was good. That's the heart and the mind together. It's, it's integration, it's passion. It's everything very good, okay? So, so with that in mind, the Tree of Knowledge, and of course everyone knows that when Adam and Chava, you know, were exiled from the Garden of Eden, it's because they ate from the Tree of Knowledge. 
So who's going to say anything good about the tree of knowledge? Right? I mean, it's like really hard to say anything good about the tree of knowledge. Okay? By the way, I, now I, I, I have to tell you the following thing in the name of the Rambam, which is very important to know, which is that we Jews are not anti-knowledge. We love knowledge. We eat knowledge, literally. Unfortunately, sometimes. But, you know, it's sort of like, not, we, you know, anyone who knows anything about Judaism knows how thoroughly we embrace knowledge. If that's the case, then, how could it be that through the tree of knowledge, the downfall came? Do you hear? The answer is, it's a very direct answer. When you hear it, you go, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. The full name of the tree of knowledge, by the way, if you look it up in the Torah, is the tree, Eitz Hadas Tovarah. The tree of knowledge of good and bad. Now, why is that so important? Because good and bad are relative terms. They're relativistic. They're subjective. Meaning to say, what's good for you might not be good for me. And what's bad for me might not be bad for you. You see, it's, it's like muddy. It's gray. Good and bad is, well, how do you define good? How do you define bad? Before then, Adam and Chava had the perception of the world of emes v'sheker, truth and falsehood, which is a totally clear, objective, black and white understanding of reality. And so the reason why the eating from the tree of knowledge was such a bad thing was not because we were acquiring knowledge. It's because it turned all of knowledge into a relativistic, muddy blob where the outside and the inside weren't so clear anymore. We talked about this on Rosh Hashanah. It's worth saying. It's worth saying. Which is that, why is it that when Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, were naked in the Garden of Eden, they weren't self-conscious? It was like, okay, you're naked, I'm naked, it's cool. Nothing to be embarrassed about, Right? And then after they ate from the tree of knowledge, it's like, whoa, right? Got to cover up. You know, can't be naked. Can't be naked in front of each other. What's going on? Cover up, which is what they did. Why did they go from not being embarrassed at all to being really self-conscious? Why? So I'll give you my understanding of it, which is that what happened was, when they ate from the tree of knowledge and everything became relativistic and subjective, what happened was the outside became the inside and the inside became the outside. Everything got turned inside out and flipped around. You see, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, they, they were naked in front of each other, but they weren't self-conscious or embarrassed. The reason is because their most intimate private area was covered over. Their souls, their souls, the most intimate part of them, their souls were covered by their bodies. Do you understand? So what's to be embarrassed about? I'm being totally, I'm 1,000% modest right now. 1,000% sneers. I have an intimate part. It is my soul and it is being covered over by my body. No problem whatsoever. You hear? But what happened was, when we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, a downgrading from truth and falsehood, which muddied everything, all of a sudden I think the outside is the inside and the inside is the outside. 
Now all of a sudden I look at your outside and I think that's the most personal, private place of you. So you've got to cover up, which is an appropriate response, by the way. If, that's, if, if that is your perception, that that is your most intimate part, then of course you have to cover up. So, so, but that is only because our perception got twisted. We started valuing things that were more material and less spiritual. It all got flipped inside out. Okay. So now, getting back to the tree of knowledge. So, so, so we're not anti-knowledge, but that knowledge was a downgrading of knowledge. Because it, it used to be truth and falsehood. Okay. Now let's get to the point here. There's several different opinions what the fruit from the tree of knowledge was. Several different opinions that the Gomorrah brings. One opinion from the Gomorrah and Gomorrah Sanhedrin is that that fruit was the esrig. Okay, so the esrig is the fruit from the tree of knowledge that Adam and Eve ate. Okay, by the way, an apple is not any of the... None of the opinions is the apple. Although, interestingly, Kabbalistically, and I'll tell you where we say it. We say it um, before we sing Lechadodi. Oh, uh, uh, is it going to be in this version? It might just be a new sub spar. Uh, yeah, it's not in this here. Okay, so it's not here. But um, what, what it says is something like um, there's something. Um, paraphrasing it, but it says something like from the Garden of Eden, the orchards of apples. Something like this. So from there you see there is a placing Kabbalistically of apples in the Garden of Eden, but not as the fruit from the tree of knowledge. So I'm sure that that's where it, that's the source of it. This is my own detective work and somehow they just assumed, well if that was the big fruit in the Garden of Eden, it must have been what Adam and Eve ate, which is not, not the case. Okay, anyway. So, so, um, so if the esrig was what they ate, now Rashi says the esrig tree had a very, had a very um, amazing quality. Now, remember, there were two sins in the Garden of Eden in creation before Adam and Eve ever ate from the tree of knowledge. Very quickly, the first one was the moon that complained, because originally the moon was the same size as the sun, and the moon said, is it right that two heads should wear the same crown? And God said, you know, you've got a good point. Make yourself small. Right? So the moon shrunk down. That was the first problem. The second problem was God said to the ground, make fruit trees that give off fruit. Listen to the language. Make fruit trees that give off fruit. And the, fruit, the trees rebelled against God because their bark was supposed to be fruit also. Just like the fruit. The tree itself was fruit trees, meaning that the tree itself was like fruit. You understand? But then it says, and then the trees gave off fruit. They left off the fruit part. So the, the ground rebelled by making trees that didn't where the bark didn't taste like fruit. And by the way, that in itself is just worthy of just going into for two seconds, which is that, that the fruit tree said, if our bark tastes like our fruit, we'll be eaten alive. 
And this is something that people, I think, who become more into Torah and mitzvahs and everything like that, experience themselves. They feel, if I take on these mitzvahs, if I start keeping Shabbos, if I start keeping kosher, if I start putting tefillin on, if I start lighting candles, I will disappear. I'm going to disappear. I will existentially not exist anymore. I'm going to be consumed by this Torah. And the best example that I can give that that's not the case at all is that an entire Mesechta, an entire volume of the Talmud is dedicated to how to build a sukkah. And it's a thick volume. And the laws are massively detailed. So you would expect that every sukkah should look the same. And every sukkah looks different. (laughs) So is it any less the case with a human being? You say, all these laws, I'm going to go into robot mode. I'm going to look like everyone else. I'm going to disappear. And what do you see? Every sukkah is different. So it's, 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 it's not the case. One will blossom. One will blossom. And one's true self will actually come out. One's true self. Because the fixed parts of a person will be in line and in harmony with the universe. And then the individual portions now will have a context with which to blossom. Okay. Sometimes, by the way, that's a transition period. That a, that a person, when they first start to take it on, they do feel constricted. And that's, that's a reality too. And we have to acknowledge that too, that there's a transition that takes place. But nonetheless, if a person stays with it, they, they, they really blossom. They absolutely blossom. Um, okay. So now, there is one tree out of all of the trees, and now we're driving toward the point here, one tree that listened to the word of God and whose bark tasted like its fruit, and that's the Esrug tree. But now it's triangulate and put all these things together. That means, according to the opinion that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was an Esrug, that means the tree of knowledge was the only tree that obeyed the word of God. An amazing, amazing thing. An amazing, amazing thing. It's been cast as the villain. Right? Well, it didn't really do anything. I mean, it's the snake that did it. But nonetheless, it's been cast as the villain. How could it be? How could it be? Right? And yet you see that the tree of knowledge actually listened to the word of God. Now, I heard in the name of the um, the Sefer, the Chazon Lemoyed, the explanation why. Because, you see, we have something in Torah, the, the Rebbe's talk about it in a very uh, disparaging way, you know, critical way. It's called making cheshbonos. Cheshbonos means that, that, I mean, you're making calculations. That, that would be the literal translation. But what it really means to say is that a person is um, trying to outsmart God, essentially. Or trying to be smarter than God. They're making cheshbonos. That's, that's how, you know, in certain circles, how, how they would express that. So the, the tree, the Esther tree, didn't make any cheshbonos. It said, God, this is what God wants, this is what I'm going to do. And that's why God said, that's why God said, don't eat from that tree. Because it was trying to show Adam, God was trying to show Adam, just like that tree didn't make any calculations, don't listen to the snake, don't you make any calculations. Just do 
Just be in accordance and in peace and one with, with the will of God, like, like that tree is. And of course, Adam and Chava fell, but so it goes. Um, anyway, with this in mind, though, I want to offer an explanation that came to me. Um, I think many teachings can come from this, by the way. And I'm still at the beginning of trying to figure out the full, the full magnitude of what it means that the tree of knowledge was the one tree that listened to the, to the will of God. But anyway, I'll tell you one thing that comes from it, is this idea that on Sukkot we read Kehelis, which is the wisdom of King Solomon. So, so listen to it here. If on Sukkot we're approaching the Esrug as the fruit from the tree of knowledge, and its bark tasted like fruit, and its fruit tasted like fruit, so that the tree of knowledge was actually rectified, so that it's actually the hero, doesn't it make sense that this would be the most opportune time when the tree of knowledge is in its most complete, exalted state for us to read the book of Kahelis, which is the book of wisdom, which is the rectification of wisdom and knowledge? Do you understand that the Chachamim very deeply and beautifully fixed learning the fixing of wisdom at the time when the tree of knowledge itself is fixed and rectified. Um, okay. So, when we're very, very fast thing on the tree of knowledge, how could anything bad have come through it? How could anything bad have come through it if it listened to God? It, as we're understanding it in this context, it's the hero, really. Well, I just want to point your attention to it, another teaching, which is that how we understand what the Satan is, right? Or the, Remember, the Gomorrah says that the Satan, the, the Yetzirah, and the angel of not so much, the Malachim Avas, is all one entity. That's one force, okay? Remember, when, when, when the Yetzirah comes to a person and tries to get a person to do something wrong, it doesn't want you to listen to it. In fact, it says that it rips its clothes and cries if you listen to it. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. You see, in this way, we understand in a very important way, there aren't two forces in this world. All of Judaism is based on the oneness of God. Shema Yisrael, Shema Elokeinu, Shema Echad. One God. That means we don't have good and evil. It exists, but evil works for good. And what does that mean? That means when those forces come to a person, they want you to say no. See, in that way we understand that it's just one unity. So the Eight Sadas, again, the Eight Sadas was trying to be a good role model. I listened to Adam and Chava. You listened too. But nonetheless, it wasn't trying to entrap. It wasn't trying to entrap. Right? The snake was there to have no said to it. Okay, so now, really to wrap it up, one last thing. Um, I always felt very bad because I never had anything good to say to anyone who asked me. And I'd hear the question every once in a while, why are you pointing the lulav and esrig in all the different directions? Right? You do it in front of you and to your right and behind you and then to your left-hand side or first right then left. Up, down, so... So I saw Rip Shlomo say that basically it's 
after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you're not tied to your old self anymore. You're not tied to any any foreign thoughts anymore. You're free to move in any direction. And that's why you're pointing the lulav in all the different directions, because you're free to move in any space that you want to move. And the whole world is open for you. Okay. Should be a great rest of the holiday, and we should only have the sweetest, best, most fantastic year. Yes.